right, if you would, take your Bible and open to Ezra chapter 3. And as you prepare to do that, kids, those of you who are pre-K through first grade, that's right, go for it there. Don't even stop. Don't slow down. Pre-K through first grade, I love it so much. Uh, so much fun. They head toward Elevate, toward a children's church time with Miss Courtney. If you have a pre-K through first grader and they would love to go to this time during the sermon, just head toward the spotlight. Miss Courtney and her volunteers will, will get, you, uh, get you set up over there. Before we get started this morning looking at Ezra chapter 3 and continuing our Fresh Start series, I'm going to ask Jim and Brooke to come up here for just a minute. Or Brooke, you don't have to come. You can just send Jim. That's totally fine. We'll just send Jim. So Jim has already uh, been able to honor and celebrate someone this morning, and we have a chance to turn around and honor and celebrate Jim uh, and I'm going to throw a couple of caveats here so that we are super clear on what's happening. So let me just tell you why we're, why we're celebrating Jim and what's going on, and then we'll be able to pray, pray for him. So Jim is going to be, this will be his last Sunday with us, hold your thoughts, for five weeks. We are sending Jim off for a sabbatical. Uh, if there's ever anybody who deserved a sabbatical, uh, it's Jim Lehu and, and his family. And so Jim has served here at Emmaus for over 20 years. And so he's going to have the next five Sundays where God's given him opportunities to go and minister, to go and travel, just to have time away for himself. Here's what I need from you, Emmaus. It's going to have to break every habit you have. <laughs> Do everything you can not to text or call or email Jim for the next five weeks, okay? Uh, now, if you text or call or email Jim for the next five weeks, what's he going to do? He's going to respond to you. <laughs> He's going to take care of you. We want for the next five weeks just to give Jim a chance to refresh, refocus, that the Lord would use this in, in fun ways in his life, his family's life. You might say, okay, Owen, really, what's going on behind the scenes that Jim's going on in sabbatical the gift of a sabbatical is you go on this before you need to do something. This is a gift. This is what we can give as a church family for him to have this chance, for his family to have this time. And so, so Jim will be back with us. He's going to be gone for five weeks, traveling, doing different things, resting. Uh, who knows? Jim, how can we pray for you for, for this time? What's that look like? I, I'm looking forward just to um, uh, being with family, going to their churches uh, to worship with them. We're uh, Brooke and I and the kids are headed off to Washington, D.C. next week for a conference, and uh, they're going to join me up there later. And so just be praying for, uh, uh, for me to uh, take this advantage of this time just to continue to grow my relationship with him. And, and, uh, and then I look forward to how is it that God can use this to just improve in, in uh, what we're doing here at Emmaus. And, uh, and then if I miss a text from you, you're my friend, so you can text me. But, uh, uh, anyways, but uh, I look forward to just uh, uh, the time uh, with my family, and I look forward to uh, what uh, I'm going with a friend in Ohio to preach for him one week. And so I'm just looking forward to uh, an opportunity to rest and, yeah. and uh, engage. So let me even qualify what I said earlier. Let's do text, Jim, but when you text him, don't ask for anything. Just encourage him. Just send him, send him encouragement, scripture, prayer. That means so much to him during this time. So, so do that. Uh, you might say, are you guys as a staff going to be able to handle this without Jim being out? The answer is no. No, we will not. So uh, 
it will take all 500 of us in this room uh, to be able to do this. So, but this can be good for, for him and his family, for our church. I want to pray for him, and then we're going to get into uh, studying God's Word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of church family. God, thank you for friendships and partnerships you give us in, in the gospel. God, thank you for Jim and Brooke and the gift that they are to me and my family uh, and to so many others. And God, I pray for them, uh, for Kennedy and Lincoln and Jackson in the weeks to come. God, I pray this would be a great time for their family. God, thank you for the work you do in their family not just in ministry, but just what it means to experience your grace and love. And God, I pray for Jim as he travels, as he has a chance to interact with people, God, that this would be a time of refreshment, that he would learn things, that he would grow personally. And God, thank you for this opportunity for us as a church to continue to rally around one another, continue to do the ministry you put in front of us. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, All right. If you've been around little kids very much, you know one of the great skills in life is being able to tell the difference between a happy cry and a sad cry. Uh, So moms are unbelievable at this. Like they'll hear a kid crying in the other room and then they listen really closely and they're like, oh, no worries, that's a happy cry. And as the dude, you're like, are you sure? Like, should we go check on things? No, 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 don't worry, like it's totally fine. Teenage guys, The ability to tell the difference between happy tears and sad tears will make or break that relationship, all right? So uh, if you get happy tears and sad tears messed up, you're back at square one, probably you're single uh, at that point. Like, being able to tell the difference between those two is crucial to relationships. We live lives where in our emotions, sometimes within a very moment, sometimes within a day, You find yourself crying, you find yourself laughing. How in our Christian life can so much of it be so good and yet so much of it be so hard? Over the next few weeks, we're trying to ask the question, how do you live life when you get a fresh start? So we've been talking about the prodigal son and you come back to the father and you receive back. Maybe you're at a time in life, you feel like you have a fresh start in life. Things weren't going well spiritually, things weren't going well personally. God's given you a fresh start. How do people live when they get a fresh start. Ezra chapter three, starting in verse one. Look at what's going on here in Ezra three, verse one. It says here, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Now this seventh month period is very similar on the calendar to where we are right now. When we think about the September, October timeframe, The seventh month in the religious calendar for the Jewish people was an incredibly sacred time. So it's not a throwaway line that this is happening in the seventh month. This is a very strategic time for the people of God. And it says here that when they came to Jerusalem, they then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedach, with his fellow priests. So these are kind of the religious leaders. And Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, These were kind of the governing officials, the political officials. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Let me clarify something uh, so we'll be clear on what's happening in the story. If you were with us last week, we looked at the book of Haggai, one of those small prophetic books toward the end of the Old Testament. 
This situation that you're reading about in Ezra chapter 3 is happening about 16 or 17 years before Haggai. (laughs) So these two Sundays that we've been looking at, the last two Sundays, we're going out of chronological order. What we learned last week from Haggai is about 15 to 17 years in the future from what we're reading about here in Ezra 3. Ezra 3, the people are just now getting back into the land. They were exiled to Babylon, they were sent away from the promised land, and now they're coming back, and when they come back, you'll notice they're making worship a priority. There are a lot of things they could do when they get back in the house, but when they get back in the land, they say, we're going to make worship a priority. They're establishing the altar here where they're going to offer their sacrifices. Verse 3 says, They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Now you might be thinking, what does it mean, the peoples of the land? Why were they afraid? Well, here's the deal. When the people were exiled, when they were sent out of the Holy Land into Babylon, not everyone left. Some people stayed. And not only did some people stay, but the Babylonians sent some foreigners to live there in the Holy Land. And so there's been a group of people for the last 70 years living in this area of Israel in this land of, uh, of promise from the Lord. And so when the people come back, there's people already there. And you're going to find out in the Bible, they don't get along very well. And so when the people of God come back, they're scared about what's going to happen. Are we going to receive back? Are we going to be able to worship? And so they established the altar here because they need to be connected to the Lord in this time. Next week, we'll talk about more of the opposition and fear that they face, but I want you to know what it means when you see that phrase, people of the lands. This is people who have been living there while they were sent into exile. Verse 4, it says when they came back and they begin to establish these burnt offerings morning and evening, they kept the feast of booths as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. Why is that verse important? What that verse is telling you is that when the people come back to the land, when they get a fresh start, they're not making up new ways to worship. (laughs) So when they come back to the land, they are connecting with the way the people of God have worshiped all along. They're keeping the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths is when they would build these little shack hut-looking things, and they would live in them to remember about God taking the people through the wilderness. Let me give you an example of what this would mean. So they've been in exile. They've been away from their homes, and they're coming back, and one of the first things they do when they come back is they don't build their own homes. They build these little shacks. This would be like you take your family on a camping trip somewhere, And you get back from the camping trip, and the night you get back, your kids want to camp out in the backyard. And you're like, oh no, 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 no. Like, we went camping. Like, we camped when we were away. Now we're back. Kids, go in your room. Like, you're going to sleep inside tonight. They get back to the promised land, and the first thing they do is they establish these booths. Why? Because they want to continue to prioritize the worship of God. They're not making up new ways to worship. They're staying connected to what God has always done among his people. It says there in verse 5, that after the regular burnt offerings they offered, the offerings at the new new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month 
They began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they came back, they built the altar where you gave the sacrifices, but they hadn't built the temple structure that went around the altar. Verse seven, they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians. These were different countries around that area to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. That verse is really interesting in your Bible because the language in that verse is almost identical to what Solomon did when he built the first temple. So it's like as the people are coming back and getting ready to rebuild the temple, they are connecting back to the way that Solomon did things with the establishment of the first temple. Again, you see connections between the past and the present. I know that seems small, but it's become very important in a couple of minutes. Verse 8. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, if you're wondering, that name does not get any easier to say, or it doesn't sound any simpler, but we just keep going with it. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning. They got things started. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord which means when they had building projects, they knew you didn't put the teenagers in charge. Like you had to be 20 or older in order to supervise the building of, of the house. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel with his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. Then look at verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. When they get back and they begin to establish the temple and they begin to establish this worship, notice how the people respond. They participate in worship. They are shouting out in praise because of what God has done. And in their praise, they're using words that have been given earlier in Scripture, that these are the same words that David gave in the establishment of the first temple, that they're celebrating the work of God. When the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the tabernacle, they celebrated God's faithfulness. The God who is faithful in the past is the source of their praise in the present. They know that they can shout. They know they can praise God. They know they can worship Him because they've seen Him be faithful in the past. It says, all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, the first temple, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. Now, this is going to become the direction for the sermon in, in the minutes ahead. But don't miss what's happening here. 
They've come back from exile. They're in the process of rebuilding the temple. And the older people who would have seen the first temple, when they see the second temple being built, they're weeping because it just doesn't live up to the glory of the previous temple. The stones aren't as big. The Ark of the Covenant isn't there. They didn't know about Indiana Jones, and so the Ark has been lost during the exile, and uh, the Ark's not there. The stones aren't as big. There aren't as many people in attendance. And they're weeping because of what they're experiencing, even though those who are younger, who never saw the previous temple, they're shouting. They're excited about what's going on. Verse 13. It was such that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. So imagine being at a, at a sporting event, and you hear so many people shouting, you can't tell who's booing and who's celebrating. Like the shouting is so great, there's so much chaos, there's so much noise, you don't know who's in favor of the team or who's against the team. It's this type of scenario that's going on in this situation. Now, here's what we want to make the transition. Here's how this scripture applies to us. There's shouting and there's weeping as God is doing a fresh work among his people. When God does a fresh work in your life, when God does a fresh work in a church, what we have to understand is that fresh work will always include both tears and rejoicing. The Christian life, the Christian journey, is going to be times of tears and weeping, and it is also going to be times of laughter and rejoicing, and the Lord uses both of those. Both weeping and rejoicing are part of the Christian journey, part of what God has put in for, before you. This is true even of when the people of God gather together, so this is something that Jaron does particularly well as he leads us in, in music and praise, and we have the team up here doing this together, is the recognition that when we come in a room like this, when we come in a room like this, there are people that come in with a lot of hurt. And the last thing they really want to do is see people rejoicing because it just reminds them of how hurt they are and, and how much pain they're carrying and, and how much they just want to come together and weep with people. And there are other people when you come into a room like this, they can't imagine why anybody would be sad because they're so excited about what God is doing among his people. And one of the beautiful things about the church is that we are called to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. The reason you need the church around you is because there are times you need someone to weep with you. And the reason you need the church around you is there are times you need people to rejoice with you. And the Christian journey is going to involve both. The question is, how do we learn to weep? <laughs> and how do we learn to rejoice in a way that honors the Lord? How do we learn to do those in the right ways, at the right time, for the right reasons? And so the rest of the time this morning, what I want us to do is walk through what do weeping and rejoicing look like in the Christian life. So we're going to start with weeping, and we want to talk about the positive side of this. So as the people come back, and they're rebuilding this, this second temple, and the older generation, they look at this second temple that's being built, and they're just weeping because it doesn't live up to its former glory. 
There's a lot of perspective to what's provided here. There's a lot of wisdom to this because remember, this older generation, they have walked to Babylon in exile and walked back uphill both ways in the snow. Like, they've been there. Like, they've been through the hard things of life. They have experienced trauma that goes beyond anything anybody can ever imagine. They've been through the difficulty. While the younger generation was getting their green participation river, ribbon, the older generation were already green berets. Like, they were this idea that we've been there. We've done that. And what we see now doesn't match what we saw in the past. And it recognizes that we live in this not yet reality of God's kingdom. We live at a time in history where we already know there's victory through Jesus, but we've not yet seen everything that that is going to mean, which means we live in a world that has been marked by sin and suffering and pain, and to pretend otherwise is not healthy. When you see people who are struggling and weeping and you say, come on, stop doing that. We live in a world where Jesus is already victorious. It misses the point. Because friends, we live in a world with a lot of pain and a lot of hurt and a lot of brokenness. And we are reminded that God draws near to the brokenhearted. That when you are weeping, when you're facing this pain in life, God's not far away. In our pain and brokenness, God is closer than he ever has been. There's this really beautiful verse in Psalm chapter 56, verse 8, that says, God keeps track of all of our sorrows, and he bottles up our tears. Think about that image in Psalm 56, 8, that God has a bottle in which he collects your tears. To use against you? No, but because he cares because every tear that you shed is precious to him because he is near to the brokenhearted. That when we weep, we are weeping as those who are putting our trust in the Lord, who realize that what we see right now is not the end of the story, that there is more to come, but we live in a world marked by pain and difficulty. Now, that's the positive side of their weeping. What's the danger? What's the negative of the weeping? Well, remember, why, why are they so sad in this moment? Why is the older generation so sad here? Well, they're sad because what they see doesn't match up to what they saw before. <laughs> you can see where this is going, right? <laughs> Nostalgia, thinking about the past, comparing everything with the past, will prevent us from fully celebrating what God is doing in the present glamorizing good things that happened in the past will keep us from being enthusiastic about blessings that God has put right in front of you today. You've heard the phrase, comparison is the thief of joy. That also has to do with the way we think about the past. The older generation is in danger here of missing this new work that God is doing because all they can think about is how it compared to what came before. Think about how challenging it is to find a new church when you move to a place or you go through a different season of life because what do you do? You're always looking for that church experience that you had in the past that was the greatest ever. Well, guess what? That's, that's not coming back. Like, life continues to move on. There's all kinds of different experiences. We don't like the music because it doesn't sound like what we had in the past. It's hard to pursue new opportunities because it doesn't look like they look like in the past. Constantly 
looking and comparing to what happened in the past will cause us to miss what God is doing in the present and not to look with hope with what God wants to do in the future. And so, yes, their tears have a place here because they recognize the brokenness of the world, but their tears are dangerous because they may end up missing out on what God wants to do in a fresh way. And let me just say, Emmaus, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for being a church that is devoted to looking to the future. Every one of us, every one of us has elements of the past that we wish would come back. Uh, like, you know, if 1985 came back, you're going to be the coolest person ever. Um, well, I, I hate to tell you, 1985 is not coming back. Well, clothing trends may actually come back around because they, all, they always tend to come back around. But as we continue to move ahead in the future, what do we have to do as a church? We have to celebrate what God has done in the past. We honor the past. We learn from the past. But we will not allow comparison with the past to make us miss out on what God wants to do in the future. Scripture says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10, don't always say, why were the former days better? Ecclesiastes 7.10 says that if we spend all of our time glamorizing the past, it's actually a sinful thing to do. It causes us to miss where God wants to, wants to take us. We don't minimize the small things that God is doing, the things he's doing in the future. So I emphasize that not because I think it's a weakness of our church, but because I know how dangerous it is and how quickly it can rise to the surface and we end up missing what God wants to do in our church in the future. All right, let's take weeping. Let's flip it over and talk about rejoicing. What are the negative aspects that could come with rejoicing? Because here's the younger generation. They've come back. They're starting work on the temple Somebody laid down one stone and they went crazy. It's like, you know, the team that finally got a first down and they went crazy and they forgot to look at the scoreboard because they're so far behind. Like, this younger generation, they just celebrate everything. Everything is a victory. There's a rejoicing here that can be dangerous because you end up rejoicing about things that aren't ultimate, aren't ultimately important. You end up rejoicing about things that are temporary. Who among us? hasn't rejoiced about starting a new project at your house, and it joins projects number 19, 20, 21, 22 that haven't been finished yet. Like, we all get excited about something new. We get excited when something fresh happens, and we don't see it through all the way to the end. Um, here's a danger to watch out for in your life. God does something really neat in your life. Like you have a spiritual turning point, you have a fresh start, it seems like you're reconnecting with church, you're reconnecting your spiritual life, you're going in the right way, there's excitement about it, and then before you know it, four, five, six weeks go by, and what happens to that excitement? It begins to go away a little bit. It begins, to, we, we want to hold on to these feelings and we, and we lose sight of where God wants to take us. Rejoicing in the Christian life is important but we want to make sure we rejoice about the right things for the right reasons, that we're turning to the Lord. What's positive rejoicing look like? Well, positive rejoicing means I rejoice in what God has done in the past. I rejoice in what God is doing right now. And I rejoice in what God is going to do in the future. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. That when we turn to the Lord, 
when we understand who he is and what he has done in our lives, our lives will be filled with rejoicing. Multiple times in the New Testament, we're told to rejoice always. Even in the middle of suffering, you find out for these people in Ezra chapter 3 that their rejoicing ultimately overwhelms their weeping. How? There is only one answer to that question, and it's found in the gospel. This connection of weeping and rejoicing in the Christian life is the very essence of the gospel message that that we believe. If you're not a follower of Jesus, hear me out on this. Hear me out on this. When we say the word gospel, we're saying the word good news. Gospel means good news. This is the good news of what God has done for us that we could never do for ourselves. At the cross, we see the reality of weeping. We see the reality of pain. We see that Jesus has taken on that pain, that that we don't serve a God who stays far away from our pain. We serve a God who comes right in the middle of our pain, who took on that pain, who took on that sin, who knows what it is to weep. The Christian life does not require us to dry our tears and get our act together. The Christian life is we turn to one who cried and died in our place who loves us in the middle of our pain and brokenness and took that up on himself so that even when we weep, what do we have? We have the hope of victory. Why? Because of the resurrection. Because the resurrection is the source of joy that overwhelms the darkness. That Jesus, even though he was dead, rose again. Even though there was weeping, there was going to be rejoicing. Weeping, may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That God is near to the brokenhearted, but in the presence of the Lord there is fullness of joy. That that scene from Revelation 21 where we see the new heaven and the new earth coming, the establishment of the new creation, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. They will be his people and he himself will be with them as their God. There will be no more mourning. Death will be no more. No more crying or pain or sin because all things will be made new. In your life, in your life, there are gonna be times of weeping because we live in a very difficult, very broken very sin-filled world. There are going to be times of weeping. We don't want that weeping to be because we're always looking to the past. We want to be that, that weeping comes because our hearts hurt over seeing the effects of sin. But we know that weeping will not win out. That there is rejoicing that comes because our hope is in the Lord. And the only way we're gonna get through this is we get through this together. The only way we learn to do this is we do this together. One of the greatest gifts in your life is a friend that you can call and you know they will weep with you. They're not gonna try to explain the situation to you. They're not gonna tell you to get your act together and dry up your tears. They're gonna weep with you because they know their hope is found at the cross. And one of the greatest gifts in life is a friend who will rejoice with you. Not be jealous of you, not tell you to calm down. They'll just go crazy and send you all the best emojis imaginable because they're so excited about what God is doing in your life because they know ultimate joy is found through the power of the resurrection of Jesus. 
the way of the Christian life is the way of weeping and rejoicing. And our hope is in the Lord because he's where the joy is. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this story in Ezra chapter 3 about a group of people who are trying to start a new, a new task, a new project, move in a new direction, fresh start in life. And anytime we start something new in life, there are going to be tears and there's going to be laughter. And we know our lives. This week, there will be things that happen are so hard. There are going to be things that happen at school. There's going to be things that happen at work that just bring those tears to our eyes that make our stomach hurt that are just so difficult. And yet you are near to the brokenhearted. And there are going to be things that happen this week that we rejoice, that we celebrate, that are so good and we don't deserve. And we know those come from your hand. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here who is struggling with their tears, who feels overwhelmed by life, who's tried to find joy in the things of this world and it just hasn't worked out, God, that they will turn to you and trust in you for salvation, that you are the source of life, you are the source of joy, you are the source of peace. And so, Father, as we think about your work in our lives, as we've seen this song about joy, God, we know that not every one of us will feel that emotion right now. But God, our hope is not in our emotions. Our hope is in the victory that comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus. God, thank you for that reminder. Help us to celebrate that together. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.